0: Hello hello and thank you all for joining us today. My name's Lauren and I'm Eloise and we're here to talk to you about all things AT and OT. Welcome back to our podcast run by OT students for OT students as well as any occupational therapist wanting to learn more about assistive technology. Today we are joined by Christine Leach, a recently retired occupational therapist who has extensive experience managing various caseloads. Today we draw upon Christine's knowledge in regards to continence and all things continence AIDS. So to start off, we just sort of wanted to um, ask if you could give us sort of a brief background on your working career as an OT, how you got into OT, and just why you've done uh, where you've worked. (laughs) How
1: many hours have you got? Give it brief. (laughs) Okay, so I was an OT for about 45 years or thereabouts. I uh, graduated in Melbourne. Um, I was the first year of the degree course in Melbourne. Up until then, it had been a diploma. So I was in the 26th year of OT training in Victoria. And um, it was a small cohort compared to nowadays. We started with 53. Students and we lost ten at the end of first year with the anatomy and physiology component, so thereafter there were only the forty three of us, and um, it was a full time course. There was no possibility for having any other job because it was basically nine to five every day. Um, when I graduated, I oh, was just going back to the course. It, uh, very different to what happens now and we actually did things you know I've often been referred to as an underwater basket weaver because OT was always regarded as basket weaving so we did learn lots of crafts but I think what was really important about that was we learned how to grade activities so for example weaving we went from paper weaving through to weaving rope um, doormats so you learned how to grade an activity to suit the patient's level of function and to encourage rehab and additional strength so I don't think that sort of thing occurs in modern day courses Mm. and in many ways I think that's a a sad loss to the profession because, yeah, camouflaging exercises as an activity means that you actually get that exercise going without people realising it. And we all know the importance of activity and, you know, OT being occupation and that sort of thing. Anyway, sorry, that's an aside. Um, You shouldn't look so happily and encouragingly at me. (laughs) I'll I'll just keep going. Um, So, yes, new grad, I've worked in... um, Royal Melbourne Hospital for 18 months I was a sole OT covering 150 beds that included neurology and burns and general medical so it was a very thankless job because the um, OT role was so minimal Mm. you weren't actually included in any um, any decisions as far as when people were discharged or anything like that it was Yeah, it wasn't a good job. I'd gone into it thinking I'd get a wide-ranging experience being a general hospital, but all it did was destroy any limited confidence I actually had because, you know, you're just – what can you do when you're covering 150 beds, basically, yeah. That was five wards I was covering. So then I left that and went into paediatrics and worked with kids with cerebral palsy and Um, then got into um, community um, uh, paediatrics, working with developmentally disabled kids, came up to Queensland, worked with the Ed Department um, for a short time. Then various personal circumstances meant I had to find a job that paid me um, for holidays because at that stage therapists within the Ed Department were only paid for the Um, for the school terms who were casual and only ended up getting paid for 40 hours, uh, um, 40 weeks a year. So, yeah, swapped over to adults and that's where I really found my calling, working in community um, adult um, setting. Uh, Worked with the MS Society for 11 years, again, as a sole therapist for the whole state, um, which, again, was really challenging, but worked with a great team And ended up writing resources on symptom management, um, fatigue, continence, cognitive changes, that sort of thing. Um, And so, yes, I really found that I was able to develop resources at that stage as being a sensible way of sharing OT knowledge um, as a sole OT. I was then approached by MASS and asked if I would come across and work in the continence area here. Um, So I did five or six years of that. And then wanted to return to being a hands-on therapist and so ended up working with the Spinal Outreach Team, which is the community arm of the Queensland Spinal Cord Service. And I was there for 11 odd years until I retired last year. There's a potted history.
0: Wow. Yeah. Okay. And you say you found your calling in adults. Mm. Do you think it was because you were more independent as a OT or do you felt like you're making more of a difference? Or... I
1: could see the difference I was making. I think in peds I found that I, I didn't – I was a bit lost. Again, all, all my working life I've been pretty much a sole therapist. Mm. So even with the Spastic Society of Victoria, I was at a centre where I was the only paediatric OT and, and the kids were severely um, – cognitively disabled as well as physically so a lot of the things that you would normally do as a sort of preschool activities or looking at holding pens or whatever the, the, these kids just weren't up to they were yeah. incredibly disabled yeah. um, and so I found that I was better off working with their parents and so then when I ended up in community uh, peds in a country town I was very much working with the parents and creating that rapport with the parents and that emotional support, I think. So, yeah, that's uh, – so then working, moving over to adults, it just ended up that, yeah, it was good. I developed those skills of developing rapport and being able to get pe- uh, encourage people to talk about the issues that they had. Mm. Um, yes, so rather than looking at what the textbooks might say I should be doing to look at, you know, Mobility in the kitchen, or that sort of thing. Actually, finding out from the clients what it was that they felt was important. um Yeah, that I, I felt that was my niche. Yeah,
0: mm, I guess it's just highlighting that person-centred care, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Very
1: much so. And I think that's why I was able to stay there for so long because the the model of service there, and again with the, with Spot the Spinal Outreach Team, was that. People call you up with a problem. You go into their lives, which is a, which is a privilege to be allowed into someone's life. I mean, community-based, you're allowed into their home. And so it changes that whole power balance between therapist and patient. You're actually, it's more that the, that the client has a bit more power in the relationship because you're their guest. And so you go in, you develop that rapport, you solve that problem, and then you get out of their life again until they have another problem because they know you helped them last time or at least you tried they'll ask you back in and so you end up with that long-term relationship with them and I found that incredibly satisfying
0: yeah Yeah. well you'd see the progression wouldn't you
1: yes um with MS you see the progression of the disease and so you're um, I guess I got out of it and out of MS in the long run because emotionally I was Getting burnt out by seeing people going downhill the whole time, mm-hmm. especially with the cognitive changes that can occur. Um, but yes, it's um, with with and with spinal people don't actually improve, but you can try and maintain their level yeah. of function. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, you've had a had a had a very long and interesting <laughs> career. You've worked in a lot of different areas. So seeing that you've had a bit of experience um, in the contents aids, so and I guess working here. Are you able to sort of explain the role of an occupational therapist within continence management program?
1: Yeah, certainly. Um, when I came here to, to master the continence project, it seemed very much that um, uh, nursing was the profession that looked after continence, and it bothered me that um, when we were looking at people scripting um, aids and appliances. They might be, say, thinking that a pull-up pad might have been a really good idea for somebody without considering what that person's balance might be or their hand function or anything like that. So just to go into a bit of detail, when you think of a pull-up, you've got to be able to step into the product. You've got to be able to hang on to it and pull it up without tearing it. But then to to change the pad... If you're wearing trousers and shoes and socks, you have to be able to undress your entire lower body to be able to change that pad. And if you've got someone with any sort of disability or even just ageing and balance problems, you're expecting an awful lot of, of those people to be able to do that whole process especially the shoes and socks and that type of thing, bending over, reaching your feet. So I, that's where I started thinking, no, this this just there, – there's a lack of knowledge um, in this area. Similarly, there used to be um, pads that were held in place, not, not adhesive pads, but ones that were held in place with mesh pants. Mm-hmm. Um, so they fitted nice and tightly. Therefore, there wasn't a smell and that sort of thing. But again – you, you've got someone trying to pull down mesh pants and then pull them up again once they've changed the pad. These mesh pads would roll, you know, like when you've got wet bathers on yeah. and they roll down and you're trying to pull them up. So it just seems that there hadn't been that consideration. So I, I, I suppose my biggest contribution, other than writing clinical practice guidelines, which is my main role here, mm. was to be looking at... Um, the, the various components of, of a human involved in the various um, continent aids. So I, I ended up doing a booklet that for each style of pad, we had a table that went through the cognitive skills involved, the, the dexterity, the um, balance, all those sorts of things to try and help people think about what might match the client to their continence problem. So, yeah, that was printed and published a number of times through through MASS. Mm-hmm. And I think that was really handy. I guess the other thing as also as far as OT role was, um, I was doing um, workshops to a number of, well, mainly uh, UQ OT students, and we'd do a two or three hour workshop on continence. And I also did some to nursing students and uh, at the beginning of each of these workshops, I'd ask the students um, to put up their hand if, you know, uh, I'd, I'd mention some, uh, some discipline, you know, who, who thinks that a continence assessment um, is mainly the domain of a nurse and, you know, people would put up their hands. The scary thing from my perspective was that nursing students didn't think that a continence assessment was their job. OT students didn't think a continent assessment was part of their job, and that got me thinking, well, what's happening? If if undergraduates aren't thinking that it's part of their work, who's going to be doing it? Yeah. And so I guess the work then ended up trying to um, encourage therapists out in the field to just do a basic assessment. Didn't require any great knowledge of what how to treat the continents. But just to be able to do that initial assessment to find out what was happening, to have a quick look at the house, to see if the bathroom was, you know, if the toilet was an outdoor shed, you know, down the back of the paddock when you're living out at your Waters or whatever. Um, yes, yeah, so just to look at that so you could then go ahead, pass refer that person on to a continent specialist. But you've done that initial assessment you found that first of all you found they have a continence problem not by saying do you have incontinence but by saying do you have problems with your waterworks do you have trouble get, getting to the toilet in time that sort of thing so using everyday language mm-hmm. and once you've you've broken that boundary then you can make the, the appropriate referrals on and hopefully people will say dry.
0: Yeah. yeah do you think that kind of language is what gets people to open up as well
1: oh, I do I, I think I think there's two parts to it one is using the language that's common to people because I I'd sort of often think of my parents in that role and my mum would say of course I don't what are you talking about dear whereas if you say you know, do you sometimes have trouble getting to the toilet in time? Oh, yes, you know, Dad has to put the seat up for me before, you know, so I can get there in time. So that's one aspect. I've forgotten what the other aspect was. See, I'm getting old. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry, yes, I've remembered now. It's giving people permission to talk about it. Um, the figures used to be that one in ten people sitting in a doctor's waiting room had incontinence but wouldn't mention it to their doctor. So it's that whole thing of making it acceptable to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you come across to ask that question first and to make it seem normal. Mm -hmm. So, for example, with MS, I used to say, you know, the way the nerves come out of the spine, often if you've got problems walking, you'll have problems with your bladder. Is that the case for you? And so it's normalising it. And it's not then people don't have to feel embarrassed. It's just saying, yeah, okay, I've got an excuse for it. Or people with arthritis, you know, you might have trouble getting to the toilet in time. Does that sometimes happen? And, yes, so it's taking away that judgment that people might perceive. So, yeah, that are the couple of answers I have. Yeah,
0: (laughs) because continence is just such a um, sensitive topic.
1: Oh, yes, continence and sex, yeah. Yes, Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. So, Christine, as you just mentioned before, incontinence is such a sensitive topic and due to the embarrassment that is often sometimes associated with it, I feel like it is quite a common occurrence for the different types of incontinence to just be lumped together under one big generalised term. So are you able to describe to our listeners um,
1: what the different types of incontinence are? There's stress incontinence, which is where if you cough or sneeze or jump or something like that... Um, you leak urine. Um, So that even happens with elite athletes, Um, Olympic level athletes um, you know netballers and that sort of thing can have stress incontinence just because of the the pressure they're putting on their pelvic floor. There's um, urge incontinence which is when you get the urge to go and you can't get to the toilet in time. So urgency is the the feeling that you're not going to manage to make it and urge incontinence is when you leak. Um, there's a combination of those things where you know as a, you, you know, you, you leak on the way and, and you and you cough and splutter and whatever. Um, the other one would be um, neurological disorders yeah. where the messages to and from the bladder aren't working properly. So then you can get sudden flooding flooding incontinence where the um, the sphincter at the bottom of the bladder chooses to just open of its own accord. Um, I remember the, working with one young woman with MS, and uh, that happened to her in a supermarket. And she was only in her 20s or so. And imagine the embarrassment and the, the feelings about herself, her ego strength, that sort of thing. Um, but she was great. She said she was wearing a shirt over a t-shirt, so she took that off and tied it around her waist. And then she said, "I wish it would have happened in the cordial, aisle, Then it would have looked like lemon cordial." <laughs> so, yeah. so that that's, that's that. Um, yeah, where the where the, um, the bladder, the, the sphincter just chooses to to um, to give way. And then there's also an overactive bladder where the bladder if you think of the bladder like a balloon in some ways, a muscular balloon, and it squeezes when you're not wanting it to and so you can leak out past the sphincter because the pressure inside the bladder is higher than the ability of the sphincter to hold on,
0: yeah. Um, We have also looked at the Continence Foundation of Australia and they define the main Continence products as pads and pants, sheath drainage for men, bed pads, bed sheets chair pads and catheters what would you say are the most common continence aids that you've worked with over the years oh,
1: that depends very much on the population um so with people with neurological problems quite often um the catheters are the way to go that when we're talking catheters there's two sorts of catheters there's Um, the catheters that are permanently um, held in the bladder. So a balloon is filled with sterile water, about five mil or thereabouts. Once the catheter is inserted into the bladder, the balloon stops it pulling out. Um, That tube is then usually attached to a, a, a drainage bag, a leg bag or a bottle overnight or something like that. So that's permanently in there. And that increases, that has a higher risk of infection. Usually that infection won't cause a problem for the person if they drink adequate um, fluid and that type of thing. Um, so that's one sort of catheter. The other sort of catheter is an in-out catheter. So that's when someone is self catheterizing and so they're taught to pass a catheter through the urethra into the bladder and it works just like a straw. It's got a hole in the top. Um, the urine drains out into a plastic bag or into the toilet or whatever and then, you know, the person puts away the catheter and now that there's adequate funding they can use a fresh catheter next time you know maybe four hours later when they're catheterizing so that has far less risk of infection and it means people um, feel less disabled in some ways you can imagine what it's like having a tube hanging out of you it's especially if you're in, in an intimate relationship yeah. that can be yeah, it really affects the way you feel about yourself as a as a sexual being mm-hmm. i suppose the uh, the other sort of catheter is one that is put in through the abdominal wall just below the belly button sorry below the navel um mm-hmm. and so that's a, a usually well you you can self-catheterize through that but it or is usually an indwelling catheter. And that means it takes it away from between the legs. So if you're sitting a lot and don't have sensation in your perineal area, you're not going to be sitting on the tubing or that sort of thing. Um, Yeah. Can I just tell an anecdote? Is that?
0: Absolutely. (laughs) If not,
1: then get rid of it. Um, I remember a a young woman who was, um, she used to Mm -hmm. self-catheterise and was travelling overseas And ended up having – so to help her with – it because catheterising in an airline toilet is – would be fairly difficult Mm -hmm. when you use a wheelchair for mobility. So she had an indwelling catheter put in. Now, because she didn't have sensation, it turns out that she ended up sitting on the catheter tubing Mm -hmm. and ended getting – ended up with a pressure area on her um, vulva. And so had to have surgery. For that and the surgeon decided to make her look nice and even he chopped off the other side as well to even her up so that's an extreme example of what can happen when you change the way someone manages their bladder mm-hmm. similarly think you know with with bowels I'm talking mainly bladder because that's what the continence project did but with bowels the um you know, people might be used to having their bowel regime in the evenings and then they go into a respite care and it suits the facility to do bowel care in the morning. And so they undo absolutely everything that's been done over the last number of years. And then when the person goes home, they've got no routine whatsoever. Yeah. So, yeah, changes in routine can be really Difficult. So I think as therapists we need to be advocating for the client that what's working for them now, try not to change it unless you've got a jolly good reason to do so, not just staff convenience. Yeah.
0: Hmm. You mentioned um about the catheter bags now that we have appropriate funding. What was it like before okay. the funding?
1: Right. Well, before the NDIS came in, so say so Mass, they didn't have the funds to provide more than say one catheter a day i'm not sure of the actual figures so people would reuse their catheter now catheters are designed to single use only it is possible to to wash them to soak them in um, miltons as long as it's only for a limited time before the miltons goes off and to reuse them but now that's not having to happen so much and that's a brilliant change um, because yeah it's yeah, just risk of infection
0: and that sort of thing. Did you see uh, a lot more infections back then, as to what you did um, later on?
1: That wasn't some that wasn't an area I was involved in, but but um, hearsay, yes, there there were more, especially people who maybe didn't understand. You know, they might change their Milton solution every two days or something like that, and so you know, it, it, it's lost its, its functional ability um, by that stage. So they weren't properly sterilising their catheters. Mm. Or people who were on tank water who didn't boil the tank water first were ending up having, inf- you know, more infections. Yeah. Okay.
0: All right. So for people that aren't using a catheter, I guess the next step down from that would be either using a pad or pull-ups. What's your experience with prescribing these kind of continence aids?
1: Yeah, I think many clinicians regard um, the pull-ups as being the the better version. Uh, but as I said before, the you've got to match the client to the pad. If someone's only leaking a small amount, it costs so much more to have a pull-up than to just have a... a little liner sort of pad like a like a panty liner or or sorry not a panty liner, but but like a menstrual pad yeah. that's far less expensive to have a um a continence pad that size than to have the pull-ups yeah. there seems to be this idea that um people prefer the pull-ups and i don't know why um you know, speaking as an older woman now, I think that probably, you know, having a pad in my knickers would be, you know, I've done that, you know, when I was younger and reproductive age, why why would I choose to change that? They don't rustle, they don't, as long as it's fitting firmly so it doesn't smell, I guess maybe people do it for, for the sense of security, but maybe they need to be considering um, larger pads. If, if it ends up that people are wearing super big, absorbent um, pads that go inside their undies, then, yes, I suppose I can think, uh, you know, that, that would be quite cumbersome and, and could make you feel pretty awful about yourself. Um, so, yes, pull-ups in that circumstance might be better. But, again, considering what the person's function is, their hand function, their balance, their strength, their endurance, their skin quality – those things Mm. you know if you're having to hoist someone onto a bed to be able to take off their clothing to be able to put on you know you can split the sides of a pull-up pad and take it off but then you've got to put another one on so then you have to strip them off it's looking at considering all those things not just making a a one-off decision that this is going to be better yeah Yeah, i think matching the person and the product
0: yeah Mm. definitely Have you spoke to many clients where they have been, uh, I guess, prescribed pull-ups and they've said no-one's really asked me if I wanted pull-ups? Yes, and and often
1: they don't know that there are these other options. Yeah, I think that it's the clinicians not knowing the range of what's available, so therefore they don't inform the client sufficiently.
0: We have got... um, that started to become really popular, and I'm sure you've seen it on like social media and stuff like that, is um, period undies. Yeah. It'll be really interesting to see if they can actually start to make those undies but for um, incontinence. Yeah.
1: So there are reusable undies. Some companies do make them um, with a reusable pad inside. Um, and I think that's a consideration when cost is an issue. Mm-hmm. Um because, you know, the cost of, of disposable pads in Mass, obviously, is great. It funds a, a huge number of pads for people, but people, you know, often that isn't enough to last them through the six months till the next order, or people may not be eligible for Mass or for the NDIS. So, you know, yeah, maybe wearing reusable um, undies is is the way to go for them. Um, with the scenarios I used to do for the OT lectures. One was, you know, a woman who was on on um, tank water. So, again, you've got to consider, well, if you're on tank water, can you wash a few pairs of undies a day or, you know, are uh, uh, reusable uh, uh, disposables better? So, again, I just keep coming back to that idea of you're know, yeah. checking with the client yeah. what suits them best. Yeah. And you can get some of the reusable ones have now got lace on them and that sort of thing so they don't look quite so horrible they used to be like you know the young um, cotton tails they look pretty daggy um even for someone of my age but um yeah now they have them that are looking at you know a bit more feminine or masculine whichever you choose yeah
0: right and if you do have a client who may be experiencing leakage despite the fact that they're wearing either pads or pull-ups however that leakage is not enough to warrant the use of something like a catheter uh, we then go on to recommend aids such as a chair pad or a bed pad can you tell us a bit more about those so chair
1: pads are like mini bed pads mm-hmm. um, they're a great they're a great idea again another anecdote um when i was uh oh, where i was working it might have been with the ms society and um I went out to see somebody in her home, and she told me to sit down while she went and got the cup of tea or whatever. And so I sat down and I felt this rising damp um, coming up through my clothing, because obviously I'd sat in her chair and she was incontinent. So that was a really good lesson. Thereafter, whenever I went to a client's home and they were mobile, therefore were sitting in a real chair rather than a wheelchair, um, I would ask them, which is your favorite chair? And I'd always avoid that one
0: yeah. <laughs> because, uh, yes, otherwise you'd end up,
1: yeah, <laughs> yes. So chair pads, yeah, sorry, that was an aside. Chair pads, um, yeah, they're, they're padded, um, they're absorbent, they usually have a plastic backing on them, heavy-duty um, heavy, duty, heavy uh, plastic. Yes, yeah, so just prevents a bit of overflow, I suppose, if the pad's not working properly or that sort of thing um the bed pads you can get them in different sizes you can get double ones i believe but you've got to think of the weight of them you know the bigger the pad the heavier it is and if they're ones with the heavy plastic backing you can get two sorts of those some with the, the waterproof backing and some without um you know if it's holding a couple of liters of fluid then yeah, it's very heavy to change, and usually it goes on over the sheet. Then you've got your pad. Then you've got a draw sheet over it. Yeah,
0: that probably that probably actually comes into one of the questions we had later on, but it was: um, is it recommended to use co- a continence bed sheet over the top of a pressure pressure mattress? Oh, I was just going to mention that. <laughs> oh, okay, beautiful. Um,
1: no, it isn't. Okay. No. When you think of it, well, particularly I was more used to scripting alternating air mattresses, Mm -hmm. so they're made of non-porous material anyway. With sheets over the air mattress, you don't tuck the sheet in because if you tuck it in firmly, then you get hammocking between the cells, so you don't actually sink down into those alternating cells. So if you have to use a a continence bed pad, then you wouldn't, tuck it in you'd leave it loose but then that can because it's thick that can then cause creases which then can affect the effectiveness of the pressure mattress Mm -hmm. so it's better for people to wear a body-worn garment as opposed to using a pressure uh, uh, sorry a bed pad over an alternating mattress
0: Mm -hmm. or yeah 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 okay So we've covered some of the personal and environmental factors that are associated with prescribing continence aids. However, we haven't really touched on uh, the risk factors that are associated with doing this as well. Can you please describe some of the risk factors? One of
1: the things that comes to mind is some people with neurological disabilities have Increased adductor tone. So, for those who don't remember their their anatomy, that's where the knees come together, or even scissor, and it's very hard to get the legs apart to be able to put a pad in to wipe yourself after toileting, to be able to put a a pad in place, that sort of thing. So that's a big thing that maybe people don't consider. If someone is losing a lot of um, urine and maybe need a bigger pad, which is wider in the you know. Mm the central part that may not actually be able to fit properly up into up close to the skin to prevent odour and chafing and that sort of thing because the person actually can't spread their legs far enough now for catheterizing self-catheterizing there are various devices available with a mirror on, on them that that spread the the knees apart Something like that might be useful to, to try and help get the pad into place, but it may be better to consider some other means other than padding up as a means of managing that person's um, incontinence. Mm-hmm. So you know it might be that a catheter or in-out catheter, something like that may be better. Um, or changing the pad more often, or um, so that they can have one that's narrower. Um, yeah, so there's those sorts of things to consider. With the reusables, you can also get a reusable pad that can go inside the undies so that, that increases the amount of absorbency. That might be a bit softer so it might be able to get up closer um, to the body to um, yeah, to absorb the urine. But, yeah, it's very hard to say what, what clinical factors other than what we've already discussed. yeah.
0: Yep. What I'm hearing, I guess, is that it's very
1: person by person. It's, Absolutely. You can't one big broad approach for everyone. You've got to look at that individual person and their needs. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. When, when I was here at Mass, it used to be that every two years, someone uh, the client should have an assessment. I think that's no longer enforced. And so it might be that people, that the clinician... Because it's so hard to find skilled clinic, uh, clinicians in continence management these days. And, um, and time is, is just so tight that people might say, oh, yes, well, you know, the incontinence hasn't changed, therefore we'll just keep scripting the same item without considering what else might have changed for that person. I mean, the continence has probably changed as well in that time, but other features, other aspects of the person's life might have changed as well. Mm. So, um, yeah, I think that regularly assessing doesn't have to be a super formal assessment, just asking some general questions. How are you managing with what you're currently using? Mm. Um, Yeah, what are you finding trouble with? How are your hands? How's your balance? All that sort of thing.
0: Mm. Um, One of the main risk factors of pressure injuries is incontinence due to the person being exposed to urine Mm -hmm. um, and faeces for extended periods of time. If you do have a client who is quite uh, sedentary and is using continence aids, whether it be pads or pull-ups, how can you minimise the risk of pressure injury occurring? Getting
1: doing an assessment of how much that person is losing mm-hmm. um, in in urine, particularly, um, and then choosing the pad based on that, so that you've got a pad with the right absorbency, um, so that there's not that you know, that that wetness against the skin. Um, Fecal incontinence, trying uh, cleaning up as soon as possible because whether you've got a a good-fitting pad or not, you're going to get a fecal burn. So Mm. it has to be cleaned as soon as possible.
0: How much time uh, for a fecal burn to occur? I don't exactly know. Yeah, it's a really good question. Because we were talking earlier about, um, say, when people are in residential care and um, bowel care is done within the morning, Mm. and like you said, we can't really switch our bodies off to be like, no, we need to go in the morning. So if you're somebody who's, you know, gone, say, at 7pm at night, and you're seeing the nurse at 9am yeah. or something like that. would
1: definitely have faecal burn yeah. at that stage, yeah. Okay. So I guess that also then comes to the fact of how is bowel management occurring in the client's setting, in that residential setting or at home. So certainly in spinal care, bowel management is paramount Um Depending on whether it's upper motor neuron or lower motor neuron bowel, are managed in different ways. But bowel care is done regularly, usually in the morning, with, so that the person can the client can get through their day without having any bowel accidents. That's that's the goal, um, so they can go for, well, basically for the twenty four hours without having any bowel problems. Because otherwise, if you're out and about, then and you, you have faecal soiling, the smell is awful, there's the associated embarrassment and all the rest, in addition to problems with skin care and everything else. But what it does to your own self-esteem just yeah, is awful. So, yes, it, it would be great if any client who has um, faecal problems gets a proper, a proper assessment of what's happening and the proper management Think of yourself wearing your uh, a bikini. Mm. You've been in this in the sea, and you come out, and you get that. If you leave your your bikini on, you get that chafing, that rubbing sort of feeling. Yeah. Now that's just with water, salt water, okay, but it's still water. If imagine what that's like if you're wearing undies that are wet. Mm. So you still get that. That chafing and, and I guess it's like, you know, with little ones, why, you know, you change their nappy and then you wipe their, you know, you, you don't just put another nappy on, you wipe their skin yeah to make it clean, to get the urine off it so that before you put the nappy on. So I guess any, any um, body fluids that are on the skin are going to cause some sort of skin damage yeah. or, or risk of skin damage. Yeah. Yeah. So if they're wearing a body-worn pad mm. that fits properly and that matches their the amount of loss that they're experiencing, the risk is minimal. Yeah. But if they're not wearing a pad that, and so their undies get wet, they... they and then the the chair pad gets wet, and everything's wet, and they, they probably the skirt or trousers they're wearing are creased, and so you've got that pushing into wet skin, which is more at risk of breaking down. Yeah, it's the problem increases with the wetter the skin is, so that's why wearing using an appropriate continence aid pad or otherwise is really important. Yeah, um. So it could be that if someone's aware that they need to get to the toilet but they can't get there in time, then maybe having a commode next to their their armchair Mm. is a good idea or in the bedroom, you know, wherever it is that they're experiencing leakage, then maybe um, considering something other than using pads or a Mm. continence device like that, using an item of assistive technology. Yeah. that can help o- overcome that problem. And commodes, definitely,
0: another thing we want to sort of touch on. Okay, Have you suggested them much and what's sort of your opinion on them?
1: Yeah. Um, I haven't so much used the non-mobile commodes, so but I've scripted hundreds of mobile over-toilet shower commodes. Um, I think they're a brilliant invention. Um, but you have to be really, really careful about the seat. Um, So for example, many clients with spinal cord injury and probably with MS and other neurological conditions will often sit for an hour or so to have their bowel regime completed. So there are are, um, commodes that are made with hard plastic seats like the ordinary toilet seat That'd be that dreadful for anybody who's going to be sitting for a bit longer. Um, with Spot, um, spinal outreach team, we used to frequently script specific seats to match the client in the width of the aperture, the length of the seat, um, the amount of padding. And some of these seats, are like six eight hundred dollars just for the seat, but it's worth it because if someone's sitting, you know, you, you've got you've got them sitting on a row her cushion or whatever. You've got them on an air mattress, um, in bed, and then you sit them on a hard commode seat for an hour. You know, it's it's doomed. Mm. So yeah, matching the the composition of the seat, the amount of padding, the size, that sort of thing, where the ischial tuberosities are. You know, your sit bones, the bony bits. Yeah. Um, some suppliers will say, oh, that has to be on the seat, you know, that's why we make the aperture this wide. But no, at least in spinal, the ITs had to be inside the aperture, inside the hole, so you're not getting that pressure up through the bones. So, yeah, that's a roundabout way of saying, yep, yeah, commodes are great, yeah. but make sure that you've, you're matching the item of equipment to the client's needs, exactly as we've been talking about with the with pads and, and catheters and all the rest. It's not one size fits all. It's make sure that you're thinking about what you're doing. We're OTs. That's what we're supposed to be doing. You know, our clinical reasoning is, is what makes us OTs as opposed to anything else. Mm. So just thinking, um, yeah, rather than just following, oh, this is what I did for the last person. That's what I'll do for this one. It doesn't work. It's that individualised care
0: yeah. that,
1: that we have that that specialist knowledge yeah. in.
0: So that actually raises a question because we were looking at shower commodes in the warehouse. Oh, sorry, um, toilet commodes in the warehouse. And we were looking at the seats and Eloise and I were thinking, okay, why is there a front bite, a side bite? Okay, yep. Can you explain that? Yes, because certainly. we were kind of yeah. trying to figure it out. Yeah. What, you know? Are these around the wrong way? Or... Okay. May I suggest, for starters,
1: that you get onto um, those Queensland spinal cord injury website because the OTs in Spot have developed wonderful resources explaining so much about equipment prescription. Okay. So that yeah. So front openings are handy. Um, you know, they they encourage access for both toileting and for showering, but if you've got someone with that adductor spasm, you can imagine that maybe their one leg might get stuck down inside that front opening. Mm. So that's probably not going to be good for that person. Um, for someone who has had, um, say, overstretching of their glue of their. The gluteal crease you know above the anus mm-hmm. um, if the aperture is too big that will help that will continue to stretch the that that area and can create fissures there so mm-hmm. that's not good a rear opening seat isn't just put on back to front because when you think of the shape of it of the aperture in a toilet seat it's like an egg it's it's rounded at the back and pointier at the front Mm. if you just turn that around it's going to be pointier at the back and wider at the front so you're not going to get adequate bowel clearance at the back so you've got to look at the shape of that egg aperture to know which way on it goes. But the rear opening is handy for someone who maybe um, they or their carer is having to do bowel care. Now that can involve putting a gloved finger, inserting a gloved finger into the anus and you know circular motion gradually stretching the anus to release, yeah, to to overcome that tightness. So if you've got a rear opening it's much easier for someone to be able to do that. Mm. Um, So yeah that's that but if you look if you're doing that you also have to consider the frame underneath because if you've got the solid bar across the back of yeah. the commode just underneath that opening in the seat it's not really going to um, make much difference yeah. to your access okay so there's all those things now bites when I was um when I first started prescribing side openings, they were openings. So you might have a closed front and it's as though someone's sort of taken a bite out of the side of the egg. Okay. Um, so, but that means that if you, you can get increased pressure, particularly on the rear corner mm. of that bite. Um, and if you're sitting someone on the commode because they've, you know, they need it padded and pressure relief and all the rest, all you're doing is adding to that problem. So that's when bites came into being. So a bite means that you've eaten the outside edge of the seeds but you haven't eaten all the way through to the egg, all right? So mm-hmm. um, that means that someone can hopefully get their hand in to be able to do their own cleansing after mm-hmm. having toileted. Um, but again, for that, you have to have the frame modified Mm-hmm. to be able to get, have that better access. And so there are some shower commodes when I was working the RAS shower commode frames, um, yeah, they were designed so that they you didn't have to script a different shower frame to be able to put a seat with a bite on it. Um, it, it was great. That just happened. So, yeah, that's what those things are. So the bites are to enable self-cleaning, side bites, Um, You don't use a side opening anymore. Um, Also, if you've got problems with balance, a side opening means you can slide down and you actually end up slipping on the aperture. And so your private bits might not be where they should be. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. So there's okay. a summary. We've just seats. learned something. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Because
0: we really were we, we were a bit stuck, weren't we? Yeah, we couldn't quite figure out why. Yeah,
1: okay. And yeah. you would have noticed the different sorts of padding too, and the yeah. different sorts of covers. So the the bog standard seats are covered with vinyl, but vinyl doesn't stretch. So if you're looking at um, so with all of pre, with all pressure, um surfaces you're looking at the ability of someone to have immersion into that surface if you've got vinyl firmly stretched you're not going to be able to immerse into that and also with the heat of the water in a shower and with age um, that vinyl can crack very um, quickly in six Mm -hmm. months or so you know you, you need to be considering replacing the seat now then there's other seats that have um um, stretch vinyl over the top and they're much better you get much better immersion and you can get more padding on um, on the seat and then there are others that have oh, again the ones that raz um put out but they're super super stretchy um, fabric and so you can have in a 90 mil thick seat sure. and get really great sort of immersion so they're again things to consider with your client's needs Yeah. Um, Yeah.
0: Was there any particular, I guess, design aspect of a, that you as an OT just despised, did not like, or that would really kind of, I guess, prevent you from maybe prescribing?
1: Yeah, the ones with the moulded plastic seats, Mm -hmm. so they're the, the cheaper versions, I would never go with one of those. Also ones that don't have adjustable height Foot plates mm-hmm. um, or swing away foot plates um, because it's been proven in research that for people, not those who have um, neurological disorders but other um, the general population, we use we need to brace we need to put our feet down and almost brace against our feet when we're having a bowel motion. So if you have a shockker mode, that doesn't have foot plates mm. uh, or adjustable height ones, so your feet are dangling or they're so high that your knees are way up in the air and you' you know you've tilted back um yeah, you can't have a proper bowel motion, so yeah, that's really important, I think as well um, also some are very upright, so if you've got someone with a slight bit of balance problems then. That's not particularly good. So K-Care used to have ones that the back was slightly angled back, and then they changed, and it was more upright. And so for clients with neurological problems, you know, who who would tire quickly, or they're already in a in a chair because they they tilt back a little bit in their in their when they're pushing or whatever. Yeah, those aren't any use. So, um, I used to find particularly for people with a progressive problem that the more adjustable the chair, the better it was, even though that makes them more expensive. But if you've got good clinical reasoning, then that can't be faulted. Mm.
0: And that's where we ended our conversation with Christine. We'd like to thank Christine for coming on and sharing her knowledge. She was an absolute pleasure to have. If you're interested in viewing some of the learning resources available from the Spinal Outreach team that Christine had mentioned, we've left you guys a link in the description box. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and that's all from us here at at ot See ya.